Uh, hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. Welcome back. Yeah, how you doing? I'm good. Where you I been? I talked to you in a while. Yeah. Here. On this particular application. So, yeah. Um, when did we do one of these last? It's, a, it's been a few weeks. We're sort of uh, we're in pre-release phase on that product. We're busy. Things have been a little crazy. Yeah. But uh, we're here. So what's new? What's uh, been going on in the world? We had CES. We got Macworld going on now. We have all kinds of stuff. So let's see. Last time we talked was right when CES was starting, correct? Or uh, was it? No, it I guess was, not. It was right before CES because we were, we were talking about how we were planning to talk on CES because you were making fun of me for wanting to talk about CES. I was making fun of you for wanting to go to CES. Wow. That's different. Um, but now we are past CES and into Macworld, which uh, is down the street from you. Which you wanted to go to, too. Uh, yeah. You just like trade shows, don't you? I like, you know, being around mm-hmm. being around my brethren. Booth babes? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so C- CES, was there anything that uh, totally floated your boat? As they say. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a superlative version of floating a boat. <laughs> floating a boat really well. Yeah, yeah, I know, like a really floated boat. Yeah, now one of those partially floating boats. <laughs> well, I guess we have one of those in the news right now. <laughs> uh, okay, so, um, yeah, what? I don't know. I mean, I guess the biggest thing I saw on the video side, I mean, there wasn't too much news, but the... I mean, so there was Thunderbolt stuff. I don't think, I can't think of any new announcements. Just things are shipping now. Yeah, I mean, there were a few new Thunderbolt things announced at the show, but mostly on the storage and whatnot side. So a bunch of people with drives and uh, MSI showed off an external GPU hooked up over Thunderbolt. Sure. Um, Um. yeah, but I mean, I think the big thing that came out of CES this year in video was that now um, it's going to be the year of 4K, or the pre-year, the year running up to the year of 4K. So next year is the year of 4K? I think so, right? Uh, I mean, people have at least one of a number of 4K units that they can show. And so sometime within the next year, I mean, probably right around NAB, we should have a lot of products demoable with 4K. And sometime after that, you know, I guess the hope is that that's what we're going to adopt. You okay? I totally scanned something. Great. Sorry, I'm done now. So, uh... Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, the, what was there? JVC has a new 4K tiny little camcorder, kind of a, the PD150 sort of form factor. Yeah. Um, that looked really cool. There were lots of 4K monitors, both big and small. Um, I don't know. What were you, what did you see? Um, I guess I didn't see anything in the 4K space that really. Uh excited me that much but i guess that's in part because i'm just a bit of a cynic about that stuff um i don't know i mean so here's the thing so they've we are i mean the industry needs something new to sell right 
I think we've all kind of given up on 3D. I mean, 3D was a flash in the pan. No one really wants it. Right. But, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what your experience has been seeing 4K TVs, but, you know, I, I feel like unlike 3D where people are like, yeah, I don't know. I don't really want to wear these glasses. You know, like when people see 4K for the first time, it's, you know, it's almost the same reaction they had with HD, which is like, wow, this looks a lot better. Yeah. Like, wow, I can't believe how nice that looks. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know why we wouldn't. Oh, no, no, it's definitely coming. It's just, I don't, I'm not that excited about it. I don't know. It's just not my thing. Um, I did like, let's see, um, I have a a link in our Google Doc here that Contour, who makes a GoPro competitor, um, was demoing a a box that teamed up with a company called Cerevo for to do um, live broadcasting from their sort of helmet cram via Ustream um, in a just sort of battery-powered live broadcasting over 3G networks that I thought was pretty neat just in terms of a really small go-anywhere, especially in the sort of... um, you know, current media landscape and the Occupy Wall Streets and, and, you know, Arab Springs and everything, these kind of devices, I think, are pretty hip. Um, yeah, although, I I mean, I... Are you, like, live blogging this, too? What are you doing over there? What? <laughs> Click, clicking too much? All right, I, would, uh, I gotta type my password once, and then I'll be done. Okay, all right, now we all know what it is now. Yeah. You got your your vibration sensors going. Yeah. So, seriously, I. You want to do a podcast this week? I, we should do one. I'm looking at Google Docs. Chill. <laughs> I'm watching your cursor. You're not typing shit in here. <laughs> what? Okay. Anyways, so uh, yeah, I mean, I just don't see them taking the. I mean. I don't know what that offers. I mean, like for broadcast, sure, I can see why you might need POV cameras, but then you're going to want microwave transmission or something. Sure. But, I mean, why would you not use an iPhone app or something? Yeah, I, you know, that there's certainly something to be said for that. This just is a more r- rugged... Um, you know, more probably easier to support in some ways model in terms of just needing to change the double A's and, uh, you know, push a record button. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I, I mean, it seems like the, the real game changer and the reason why we're seeing stuff with all these, you know, movements is that it's just the ubiquity of capture devices. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know how many hippies are going to go out and buy a, contour strap it to a bicycle helmet yeah. whenever they go to a protest yeah that's probably fair um just looking at the list of sort of articles i pulled out of ces here um the only other one that i thought was a pretty just you know clever idea or at least interesting was the um Sony showed off some camcorders that are essentially um, use a Steadicam type mechanism internal to the camera where they've actually floated the lens and sensor on a sort of gimbal like you would in a, you know, a glide cam or something um, so that it's all contained within the body of the camera 
Um, right. And you can actually see the lens and everything sort of floating within there, which I think is uh, it's interesting. I, I, again, it's very niche and I'm not sure sort of what the who's going to choose a camera just for that reason. Um, right. But, but I mean, as a technology, I don't know. I'm, I'd be curious to see how it compares to... I mean, because Canon for years has had an optical stabilizer to use as like a fluid-filled prism. And that, you know, is kind of the same idea. They're not using... I mean, does this... Is this servo driven or is this just like sure. big honking weight in there? Yeah, that's kind of what I assumed, but I don't know. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's... I don't know, anytime you don't have to use have to do it digitally i think you you have a win um especially since you can daisy chain the two technologies and get an even smoother thing um i don't know it seemed interesting i could see it taking off um, so i i guess this requires that the lens and the chip be mounted together right in that gimbal. So it's not something we're going to see in external lenses or anything. Right. Unlike Canon's technology. Yeah. But yeah, it seems, I don't know. Uh-huh. What did you think of um, the Samsung uh, TVs they were showing off that are uh, upgradable, that you can actually like swap out the, the processing board essentially, um, or plug in additional CPUs and things like that? Do you think that's... I just don't like what... So yeah, so the idea is it's a TV where you can swap out the the logic, but not the display. Right. I just don't know why. Well, one of the things as we sort of get ever closer to a uh, notional Apple television, people have said is, well, you know, you want to upgrade your Apple TV box, the the content delivery box much more frequently than you want to upgrade the display and if that's built into the tv well then you're sort of stuck um so i mean that's the idea here is to be able to sort of upgrade the hardware that powers it 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 does seem a little odd though the thing that i don't understand is so are they planning on yeah i guess yeah so I mean, it, you know, to some extent it makes sense. And it's very similar. One of the things I thought was really clever that got shut off at the at the show was the Roku. Um, I forget what they call it, but they've essentially built one of their Roku boxes right into an HDMI um, dongle. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. So like a, like a USB thumb drive that plugs into HDMI. As long as you have the newer HDMI that has power provided, that is your Roku. And then it uses RF for the remote, so you don't need line of sight. Um, and that makes a ton of sense. Just something that, you, you know, you're... TV becomes a dumb monitor and you sw- snap in this little dongle. Yeah, um, no, I can see that. So, yeah. yeah, I just don't know about the... I mean, I guess if it if it's designed for that, if it's to do the, like, media center type stuff, I guess I was thinking of it as, like, upgrading the DSP in the TV. And that I don't... Yeah, I mean, they, they talk about that, too. Um that yeah you can have like you know four cores of processing and whatever and i guess you know maybe you know better don't know what's going to change i mean yeah it's it's hard to imagine that anything would ever come of that but yeah yeah, i mean it i don't know it seems like a way to underpower the tv and then get money later right 
adding features. Right. And it's certainly not something that would become an industry standard and, you know, become a default, you know, so. I just, you know, they're going to find the same thing that they find with all their phones and everything. Once they've sold the TV, it's not really in their best interest to... Yeah, to keep supporting people with that. Well, yeah, to, like, encourage them not to upgrade. Yeah. No, that's certainly... Especially with unit costs, you know, the profit on all these things are so low now, like, how long are you going to support them for? Right. Hmm. Well... I, I, was there anything else at CES you saw? Uh, not really. Um, we can throw some more links in the show notes if people want to take a look at uh, anything else we thought was interesting. Yeah. There were a few things in the system in a breakout here that weren't actually CES related, but uh, we can sure. move on to another topic here if you want. Um, Nikon was showing off the D4. Oh, yeah. I think that's um, interesting because it's got a bunch of things that some of the other video-centric DSLRs haven't had in terms of their um, outputs and some of the controls you get while shooting. So, like, you know, full 1080p HDMI output. Um, Clean. Yeah. yeah no Longer overlays. shooting times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it looks like a nice camera. I mean, so the... The prosumers who follow, who sort of worry about the cost of gear and such, and you know, maximizing their value, you know, so not like NBC right. when they're when they're crewing up for a show. Like, there's always been this tendency to vilify the companies for like hearing their products, right. especially on the software side. And a lot of those people, you know, the refrain was always Nikon doesn't have, you know, th- so the, you know, the thing is Canon. The reason why Canon doesn't make the perfect DSLR is not that it's hard, it's that they don't want to stop selling cameras, right? you know, video cameras. And so that refrain has always been like the Nikon should make a really good video DSLR because it's not hard to do and they don't they're not going to lose sales on anything else because they don't have a video business to protect and it seems like i mean at least in some small way that might that that must have been true cuz they did make a nicer yeah video dslr i mean i don't i don't think they waited to release it i mean i think it was actually a hard thing to make an engineer and who knows if they're going to see enough sales of it to make it worthwhile i mean I still assume that at the price point the D4 is at, it's going to predominantly be high-end professional shooters, film shooters, still shooters. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, it looks it looks like a really nice camera. I'd be curious to play with one. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you know, someone asked me the other day because the, there were a couple uh, snaps of um, a potential Canon 5D Mark III um, on a shoot in Africa that leaked out. Um, and someone was asking me, like, should I wait for this for video? And I started kind of thinking, is the, is the day of video for DSLRs kind of, you know, waning because we've got, we've got a lot of better video cameras now that delivers, you know, the things that people saw as benefits in the DSLRs, um, you know, like the F3 and the AF100 and the C300 and the Scarlet. Um, obviously, in general, at a higher price point, although with things like the AF100, not a substantially higher price point. But uh, yeah, I just I wonder if 
for all but the most budget conscious shooters um and the d4 isn't a super cheap camera um but no i mean all- it's not much less than uh you know one of those video cameras you mentioned right and so i, I kind of wonder i mean the obviously the 7d and the 5d mark ii sort of proved and really really showed the manufacturers wow there's a huge market out there for the look and the the way you shoot with them and the use of still lenses and all of that but now they've sort of filled that niche with real video cameras and so i wonder if good if good video centric dslrs are sort of um going to start to fall out of favor i think we're going to find it's the same as phone cameras like i think they're going to continue to um sort of obviate the need to ever get a video camera Sure. You know, in the sense that a lot of people are going to have DSLRs and they're never, you know, for the little bit of shooting, you know, if you're going to shoot your kid growing up, buy a DSLR, shoot Christmas and birthdays in video, take pictures the rest of the year and never buy, you know, why would you ever buy a video camera at this point? But really in that case, for most users, the answer is why would I ever just not use my iPhone 4S? I guess. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we're going to constantly see like, these are all stones racing each other downhill. <laughs> but I mean, it, that's good. Like, and that's why we have to go 4K. Otherwise, we're going to run out of things <laughs> to turn into consumer products. Yeah. Um, cool. But you know, I think you know if you're sending. So you're a you're a newspaper, and you're sending a photographer out on location. Sure. Yeah. To shoot stills of an event. You know, why not have them shoot video and send that back too? And you can put it up on your website. I mean, definitely. These yeah. are all things that you know. I feel like being only taking stills is you know there aren't going to be cameras that just take good stills for much longer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And then you know the D four looks really nice. It's a nice form factor. It's a nice definitely. thing if you got you know. It's, you know, it's getting to the point now where where there's an embarrassment of riches. And, you know, I think the answer to that, you know, notional person who asked you is, yes, you should wait until you're ready to shoot. Right. And you should buy. Right. And then buy the best camera you can afford. Wait until your script is finished and you've cast people and then buy it. Yeah. Whatever's out there. Because, yes, there will be better stuff available in a month. But that's also not a good reason to wait on doing something. Yeah. Because all of it is good enough now. I think that's fair. Um, cool. What, uh, um, you want to talk about Apple? Yeah, Apple. They uh, sold some stuff last quarter, huh? Yeah. Speaking of uh, having a camera in your pocket to shoot your kid growing up sounds like everybody has it now apparently um at least half of all smartphone buyers uh last quarter and uh yeah they they sort of blew it out of the park i I mean you know we knew it was going to be a good quarter but yeah so let's sort of explain what we're talking about in case someone didn't see it so apple just finished their fourth quarter 2011 and did their announcement of earnings for shareholders like they do every month every quarter and uh there was some speculation that they were well they were down last quarter well they they met their own expectations but missed analyst expectations right 
so they didn't grow as much as the market sort of expected them to and the stock plummeted and all this stuff and uh, so everyone was sort of looking at this quarter to see what was going to happen um, I think there were a lot of people saying that you know uh, they were saying whatever they needed to to get page views right but um, at the end of the day, Apple did okay. It was the second most profitable quarter for any company ever in the history of people selling things. Yeah, which is not bad. I mean, it's not number one, but it's okay. So who's number one? Exxon. They had one quarter um, in were like 2007, sold, 2008, yeah. They sold more oil? Yeah. Wow. When, yeah, oil prices were really high and the market right. was, yeah. Um, but no, they, you know, they there's nowhere you can look in apple's disclosure really that doesn't look amazing um you know more max iPods, iPods are they're not doing well well ipods are not continuing to grow but they're being cannibalized by apple's own products so yeah i don't think anyone's too upset about that um ipad growth was pretty astounding 15 million ipads in the in the quarter um and then the iphone number 37 million i think iphones um just a huge number yeah, the statistic that amazed me was that this last year, <clears throat> they sold more iPhones than every other year combined. Right, and they've done that every year since the iPhone Every year came since out. they announced it, they've shipped more than every other year before that. Yeah, and and what's even crazier <clears throat> to think um, is that this quarter doesn't really include the iPhone 4S being on sale in China, um, and there's apparently been huge reaction there to the 4S going on sale, and, and some other markets as well that the 4S is just now getting to. And if you believe the Gartner numbers today, um, the iPhone 4S is accounting for something like 90% of the, of the breakdown. Of what? Of, of um, iPhone 4 versus 4S versus 3GS. Really? Yeah. That sort of amazes me because I would think the 3GS was doing really well. Yeah, you would think so. But I think, you know, maybe people are making the the rational decision, which is over the course of the two years I own this phone, it's going to cost me $2,400. So I may as well spend the $200 now to get the substantially better phone. I don't know what just happened. I think your cat and your dog uh, just exploded. Yeah, one of them did. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, good for them. And uh, we'll see where next quarter goes and if they can keep on printing money the way they've been. Yeah. Um, was there... So I thought... One of the things I saw in the, the coverage of it but didn't hear in the actual call was something about new products. Yeah, I didn't hear that in the call either. Normally, in but in, they talked about it in the. I, some of the coverage I saw mentioned it. Uh, I didn't see that. I mean, because in a lot of quarters, what they'll do is say, "We're expecting this kind of hit from um, an impending product transition cycle, or you know, increased shipping for an, you know a coming product." And there was nothing like that in the call this time, at least, um, which sort of made you wonder if we're going to see an iPad three this quarter, et cetera. Yeah, I mean. It, it could also be that at this point their inventory um, is so low, and their their um, the number of days between you know factory and sale is so low that they can make the switch to a new product without really incurring any. Yeah, hit. it sounds like they can. I mean, I've got to imagine at this point, line pretty darn quick. Yeah, I mean, they must be air freighting everything over at this point, anyways. So, 
Yeah. And then it sounds like they're, uh, well, I mean, having such a deep product portfolio now helps too. I mean, one would imagine that if they came out with the iPad 3, they might not stop shipping the iPad 2 in the same way they're doing now with the 4 S. Right. And the 4. I mean, that seems to be, you know, taking last year's product and sending it down market seems to be working out okay for them. Right. Well, and especially with the new textbook initiative, I think there's going to be increasing um, incentive for them to, you know, have lower priced iPads. Ship a $200 iPad, yeah. Right. I mean, you know, even if it was just $100 cheaper, that matters a lot to schools and Apple, especially if it's going to schools, Apple's certainly going to make that up on their 30% cut of textbooks. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying they should, you know, sell below cost, but there's definitely going to be an incentive to keep a less expensive product around. Yeah, especially if the pro- if the production costs are lower. Yeah, there's really no reason not to. I do wonder if they would ever. I I, I doubt it, but um, if you remember back to about ten, twelve years ago when they did the eMac, um, I wonder if they would ever do anything like that for um, their mobile devices. You mean uh, education only offering? Yeah, you know, sort of devalued, but. Um, you know, really designed for that market and, and with low, low margins. And, you know, the EMAC was a reaction to education sort of balking at the increased price of the G4 iMac. Yeah, I think they just don't care. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, this well, I just don't th- think it's an issue. So one, Apple's not losing on product costs anymore. Two, I don't think, I think Apple's learned that, I don't think they're interested in chasing small unit numbers. Sure. I mean, witness Final Cut <laughs> and other things that, you know, are only making them a ton of money, not a few tons of money. Um, you know, look at the Mac Pro. Like, I just don't think, you know, the Xserve. I mean, these are all profitable things that they just, they're not profitable. You know, they get lost in people's attention. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I mean, I think they would, you know, There'd be no point. I mean, they. I. I mean, I guess they have an education sales system in place, so they wouldn't have to do that. But they would, you know, like why not just sell it to everyone? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and I mean, no one can compete with them on price for the tablets, anyways. So it's not like they have an incentive. I mean, whose whose price do they have to beat? Right, that's true. I, I think it's just a question of how important they feel it is to get to prime the pump in terms of getting the devices into schools to really push this textbook initiative. And um, you know, if they really do see an income opportunity there, or if it is really more a it's something they're passionate about. And if it makes some money, that's great. But um, it's the the longer game that they're playing. Yeah. I mean, at that point, they could just subsidize the purchases. Yeah. I mean, you could, I think they could spend, I mean, so one, they could spend a lot of money giving these things away or giving them away at half price and just suck up, one, not making profit on them, and two, being able to, I mean, so they make, what's their, I mean, they're probably making 180 bucks a unit in profit. Um, you know, to, their gross margins is quarter were huge um but you obviously don't know how that breaks down between products but yeah that's probably about right and so they can ease you know if nothing else they can 
you know, they can sell them at cost, knowing that they're going to make money back on the app store, and knowing that they can write off that 180 bucks as a tax expense since they're you know itching to get money back into this country without paying their fair share of taxes on it. Right. So I mean, gifting a bunch of <clears throat> bunch of products that cost is a good you know, and and making what 40 percent tax write off on them. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's not the worst way to do it. it seems yeah. better than like you know spinning up another factory to make a cheap plastic version of the thing. Yeah, that's probably true. Well, it's going to be really interesting to see where this whole textbook thing goes. I think I, I'm really excited about it. So, yeah, I'm. I'm I'm still skeptical. I mean, it seems like it everything's going to go that way eventually. Um I just I don't see Apple's not going to go into the production side. You know, the they're textbook still creation side, right, they're still yeah. going to be textbook companies and they I don't know. I mean, I guess it's promising that some of them seem to say they're interested in this well but i don't know how true that's going to be right i, I think where it's really going to be interesting is how much power this shifts to um educators and both in terms of teachers being able to create textbooks but also just making the teachers more a part of the textbook buying decision um you know even if it means that they're circumventing state boards of education and obviously that's an issue that's going to have to be sorted out but um the idea that that teachers can sort of pick the right textbook for their class if their class has ipads and deal with it at that classroom level and create supplemental materials or work with colleagues to create supplemental materials i mean i think it's really going to be interesting to see when we see um you know the first group of sort of rock star in, in nationally known k-12 through teachers who you know are being recognized for creating amazing free educational materials that are distributed widely um yeah i mean i could imagine you know a few khan academies coming out of this yeah but i know it'll be it'll be interesting i expect that you know one of the big things that'll come of this is we're going to spend a lot of time educating the third world because they're more interested in it than us yeah, well, we're more capable of producing the content, and they're more interested in consuming it. Yeah, much like Khan Academy, which is you know great. Yeah, absolutely. Someone needs to take over when we're gone. <laughs> uh, revision three. Oh yeah, so another good earnings report. Revision three. Uh, I don't think it was public. I mean, they're not a publicly traded company, but they told uh venture beat. It? venture beat about their numbers and they sound very good yeah um so revision three is a web network tv network so they do a number of mostly like talk show style um shows where people on couches talk about things or people on sets talk about things or you know reviews of products it's a yeah gaming you know tech stuff mostly young men centric things you know internet news um hackery things right and they put them up as web downloads so you know you go to their website you look at it or you get it in 
podcast YouTube or, or Roku or, 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 or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So no, you know, totally new distribution model. And so they, I mean, revision three has always been different or, or an interesting case because they went vertical very early in terms of investment. Um, so unlike something like Leo Laporte's twit network, which has always grown more organically um, in terms of self-funding and everything. Revision three early on, you know, grew out of I think um, it's a it was a what a partnership between you know Kevin Rose and David Prager and some others, but very early on took funding and became more of a real business. Uh, built a, a proper studio um, and really you know ramped up shows and they've hired talent and and really tried to make a go of being an internet TV station. They did everything you should do if you're serious about making tv including buying a copy of scope box <laughs> and uh they struggled you know let's be honest they've really struggled they've had rounds of layoffs they've lost a lot of key personnel um because the the advertising dollars haven't necessarily been there and the viewers haven't necessarily been there and part of the problem i think is that you know the the total viewer base is relative can be relatively limited for this type of content because you sort of end up speaking to the same viewers over and over again across well and because they needed to create the viewer base there wasn't it's not like they were stuffing themselves between the history channel and discovery channel five and seven right and they you know would get you know there wasn't a pre-made audience looking for content right there they had to go out and find that audience and uh yeah i mean i think i think in large part what happened was because they didn't grow organically they sort of sprinted in the beginning to get ahead of everyone else in this new market and then you know they had to have the money and the patience to wait until the market showed up yeah where and they it, had run to and it sounds like they're starting to get there they say and they, so now they, are. they yeah. say they have 800 million views in 2011 um, and that they're starting to draw advertising dollars from people actually seeking them out as a primary advertising source. I mean, it, you know, anyone who's watched Revision 3 shows over the years has known that it's sort of been the same group of advertisers who are sort of not necessarily people you want to hang out with, you know, your GoDaddies and, and whoever. Um, and it's, they're starting to get more serious clients, you know, Ford and Doritos and Electronic Arts and some of these big names in the advertising world. Um, taking them seriously and and I think that's really fantastic and obviously you know even though they in the world of podcasting went very vertical in the world of broadcast they're still a very lean organization and so they can probably make some you know good you know profitable results from this yeah it'll be yeah it'll be interesting because they uh So yeah, the the number the eight hundred million number, I I'm curious how that compares to other things. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, like if that were one YouTube video, that would be a lot of views. But that's talking every single show. I mean, when they talk about viewership, I just don't know if they're talking about. Um, I mean, I'm assuming that's total videos served. Yeah, that's my platforms. assumption too. Like every single video that went into iTunes, whether it got watched or not. I just, right. I mean, it's a big number. I'm not sure. It's, you know, just having worked in TV, it's still a small, you right. know, right. A, a bad show on sort of a backwater network gets 
you know, half a million views per episode. And if you're a network going 24-7, 365, obviously. Right. That's every show, yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah. But but if you just take it as sheer numbers and aggregate that you can put an ad on, like, you know, that's, if you're selling one ad, that's more than the Super Bowl as far as impressions. So, yeah, I mean, and I'm, I doubt they need, you know, Super Bowl ad money in order to keep their thing profitable. Right. So, you know, good for them. And it's, it's exciting to see them and a few of the other smaller networks, you know, seemingly successful. Um, and yeah, they've all, you know, they've all, well, there's, there was a few of them that started, you know, in earnest five to 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And at least you know, the ones that I can think of are still around. They yeah. seem to be growing year over year. Yeah. Um, you know, one I'm not sure how it, it it does because I just don't really pay attention to these shows is um, Jason Calacanis' This Weekend Network, uh, which has a lot of shows that are done in a variety of different sort of um, situations. But I've, I've never, I don't know. Wait, wait, wait. He, I thought This Weekend was Laporte. Well, there was a whole, yeah, there was a whole hubbub about that. So Leo has a bunch of shows called This Week in Tech, This Week in Google, This Week, whatever. And then at some point, Jason Calacan has bought thisweekend.com and offered it to Leo. And Leo said he didn't want it. And so Jason started a network at (laughs) thisweekend.com. And so all of his shows are like This Week in Startups, This Week in Web Design, This Week in whatever. That's sketchy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just sort of assumed that anything... TWI was one of Leo's new things, right? But and it's an interesting network because it draws a lot of you know high name or you know big name talent. Um, but I just don't see people referring to the content there, and it's all video content, so I rarely am interested in it. Um, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you think of, you know Twit, Revision Three, Five by Five, etc. Yeah. So divergent um divergent sure. podcasts we do make a lot from advertising do. Uh, this week's episode sponsored by scopebox scopebox 3.0 coming soon the makers of scopebox coming very soon yes so anyone who listens to this if you actually have put up with us for what 21 episodes now yeah. And you want to try out Scopebox 3 before it comes out? Send us an email. Yeah. Um, we're in beta. It's very beta y. It's well, almost not beta Yeah, I would say it's actually very uh, gold mask. It's the end of beta uh, Yeah. Yeah, especially if you have um, any bits of capture hardware things. Uh, we're always looking for more people in odd situations. So get in touch. Yeah. So, uh, what else do we have to talk about this week? Um, I thought maybe we'd talk um, briefly about this uh, Sony um, patent or this Sony um, paper about doing um, improved low light in. Well, they were talking about cell phone cameras, but I think any type of camera by adding white pixels to the RGB oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sensor matrix. Yeah. And I didn't get this at first, and you explained it to me, and then it made sense. Um, as I mean, a, I guessed. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> As a pretty clever idea, actually. Um, and the idea is that Sony, in addition to the normal RGB and R, G, and B pixels that we find on a CCD or CMOS sensor, they've essentially added a 
what what the articles are calling a white pixel, but I think what what they really mean is just a Luma pixel, right? Just an unfiltered pixel, right? And the idea is that by not filtering it, um, you get more light through, and you can sorry, which means it can have lower gain, right? As long as you can adjust gain on a per pixel site, right? Ratio. And so the result is you get better low light performance, um, and as long as your sort of software to deal with all this data is good enough, um, you know you don't really lose anything in that process. Right. So I, you know, it seems like a really clever idea. I think you know one of the interesting things to see in terms of adoption is how, what's the actual breakdown in terms of shrinking your. If you need to keep your sensor size the same. It, you have to shrink your photo sites to fit another photo site on, on the sensor. Or you just you change your bat your pattern. So instead of being a bear with two greens for every mm. R and B, you do an R G B and a W. Yeah. Okay. Since you know green, it makes up what like eighty percent of a YUV signal. Right. You can recover most of that from that other Luma channel. I mean, the, I'm guessing when you do the Bayer pattern, you would actually interject a percentage of that Luma pixel into the other three channels. Right. And that's how you would get the extra Luma information. So it's probably not much worse than interjecting that second green photo site. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I guess the difference is that there they're trying to make twice, they're trying to make two pixels out of that those four photo sites. Right. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if this makes it to the market. It sounded like Kodak had a similar patent a while ago and never really acted on it. Um, so hopefully Sony will put this out and differentiate. Um, Sony makes sensors for a lot of people. It's not just for Sony cameras, but uh, um, yeah, lots of people buy Sony sensors. Yeah, it looks interesting. Uh, anything else on your list? I don't think so. All right. I mean, there were a couple other news pieces that we can maybe throw in the links, but I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, one thing I'd throw out there is um, we talked a couple weeks ago about um, some controversy around CS6 upgrades for Adobe when CS6 launches this spring. Um, and they've decided to do a one-time exception and allow owners of CS3 and CS4 to get upgrade pricing as well to CS6. But after this, uh, you're going to need to stay current. So if you do have CS3 or CS4, be sure to jump on this pricing if you want to maintain upgrade Now's pricing going forward. Um, yeah, this is a one-time sort of deal, they say. It'll be interesting. Yeah. Makes you wonder if they're going to back down next time too, though. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, they they're definitely fishing around for a licensing scheme that works, and they've announced a number of things that have never come to fruition. So yeah, it sounds like they're shopping for something that makes everybody happy, and uh, I don't think that exists. Yeah, short of open sourcing it and still providing support. Uh, you want to move on to chatter? Sure. And get back to get back to the release. <sighs> what? Uh, what do you? Oh, what do you, I, um, I don't think we ever linked to Year of the Glitch, and so no. um, I'm going to throw that out as my chatter, which is a guy who every day is doing a Tumblr type blog post of um, 
video glitches or image glitches, so cameras that have failed and made interesting patterns or software that's failed or files that have become corrupt or files that have just been run through um, you know, destructive processes or mucked with in a hex editor or whatever. Um, but year of the glitch dot com dot tumblr dot com. Oh man. Um, should I spell it right? Is that part of it? Yeah, it's the internet. So some of these are actually like physical sensor failures. Some of them are overprocessing issues. Some of them are media failures. But um, you know, it's interesting. Interesting. Cool. So you know, so far he's uh, done. He's he's done all twenty six days so far of the year. So not that many left to go. Huh. Uh, this, I'm gonna put out a link to a, uh, a digital projection, uh, what's it called? Um, projection mapping video from, uh, the UAE that they did of the of a mosque, the uh, Zayed Grand Mosque. Oh, I haven't so seen this. It's a, it's a nice white building. It's like everything, it's a nice white building with lots and lots of texture to it, like bulbous shapes and such. Uh-huh. And they uh, they spent some money to buy, to get a few projectors and they coated the whole thing and um, they made, did a giant projection on it. Wow. Oh, and no. as far as these things go, it's uh, it's pretty good. I'm I'm eager to check this out. Uh, yeah. So cool. I, I've always been curious. I what the workflow is for making one of these. Yeah. Like I uh, think I think people end up doing it with a 3D model. Like they make yeah, a 3D model of the thing, but then you end up like mucking around in, you know, constantly moving back and forth between, you know, trying to texture map it to preview it and trying to. You know, because you must have to edit everything and do all your After Effects work in 2D. Right. And then sort of keep in mind, like, how would you do these, like, so the on the top, like the big round domes, I guess you do, like, some sort of Cartesian mapping and then, like, stick wow. a mask into your your Illustrator, you know, your After Effects file and sort of keep track of where you're at, like... I don't know. The complications of like trying to move stuff on a 2D plane that's going to be mapped to a 3D texture later. Well, maybe they actually just do it as, you know, do all the animation in 3D space as well. I guess. I mean, it's not unheard of. I'm trying to think of, is there a good app for that? I don't know. I guess you could, I guess you can animate textures in Maya or something, but. Yeah. I mean, just don't no. think of them as textures. Think of them as, you know, objects with textures applied moving in 3D space. Well, but you'd have to just move the textures on the object. Because no. they have to deform as they go. Otherwise, you'd have to animate the deformation as well. Yeah, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> it, seems, it seems like a not easy problem. Or yeah. maybe you just, like, animate from positions and then 
bake in. I mean, I guess because everything's coming from projectors, it's all going to get warped anyway. So maybe you just animate everything from the position of all the various projectors. Sure. And then add the deformation matrix afterwards to get it to wrap things properly. Yeah, I was one of the things I, you know, I've seen these a lot before, but they tend to have been on flat things. Right. That were just a little bit, it was a problem, but not quite as drastic. Yeah, this is very cool. Uh, they must have had some serious bucks behind this. The UAE, they, uh, they're not hurting right now. Seems to be. All right, well, uh, we'll talk to you soon. And Yeah, we can probably get one more of these in next week, and then, and then I leave. Yeah. Cool. You're not going to dial in from Thailand? Probably not, no. Oh. But I'll talk to everyone when I get back. Okay. You can tell us stories. Yes. All right. Well, uh, I'll talk to you next week then. All right. Bye. Bye.